AFIO Now is presented by Northwest Financial Advisors, where our world revolves around you. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former U.S. intelligence officers. Today, I have a very impressive guest with an amazing story. His name is Lieutenant General Michael Grunt. He is a retired Marine Corps officer with 36 years of military service and a number of combat duty tours. He has a master's degree in electrical engineering and applied physics from the Naval, Naval Postgraduate School. And some of his most recent tours of duty included um, director of the Joint Staff Intelligence at the Pentagon. At NSA, he was in charge of computer network operations. But most recently, and most relevant for today's conversation, he was the director of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Mike, welcome to AFIO Now. Great. Hey, thank you so much, Jim, and uh, thanks to AFIO for uh, you know for for recording this and and kind of and capturing some of these important messages uh, over time here. So I really appreciate uh, being a part of the series. Mike, what is AI all about? Is this just another passing phase? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, um, here here's how I think about here's how I think about artificial intelligence and the, the entire digital transformation that you know that we're we are uh, we are embarked on today. Um, I, I, I think the word transformation is so important here because transform means the form changes, right? Literally, transform. So what that means is the way we've done things before, the things that we've done before perhaps are all subject to revisiting here in, within an era of now with technological uh, um, uh, innovation and uh, uh, you know things being possible now that were not possible before, suddenly we have to kind of rethink like what what about our processes? What about our technologies? What about how we fight? What about how we manage our economy? What about how we uh, 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 address the information space? Like a reimagining of all these things is necessary when you're in a period of transformation. And you know we clearly are. I mean, something you know, you can see it, right? Something is different today that will propel us for decades to come. So it's really an exciting time to be in this space, to be honest with you. Mike, I've seen all the Terminator movies. Is that <laughs> what AI is like? And um, should we be concerned? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, Jim. I, I think you know, a, I, I you know I often think so. I'm not a sociologist, but if I was. Um, I, I would come I would come up with some kind of index for people like what age they were when they saw their first Terminator movie, because I think, you, you know, the, a sociologist would go crazy with this, you, you know, with figuring out like what, you know, what kind of lasting impressions did that leave and everything else. But, but I, you know, seriously, I, I think I think a lot a large segment of, uh, of our population doesn't really understand that artificial intelligence is the absolute driver of our economy today, right? Like every every industry has artificial intelligence integrated, you know, whether that's, you know, whether that's manufacturing, whether that's manufacturing with robotics, whether that's investing, you know, trying to trying to monitor patterns in the, you know, in the in the in the uh, in the markets so that you can quickly take advantage of market disparities or uh, you know, potential gains in the market. Like like so, you know, manufacturing, investing, um, uh, delivery, um, um, even farming, right? Like, here's this is my fam- famous favorite one, right? Is, um, you know, jo- John Deere. So when I grew up, John Deere was a tractor company, right? And we used to have tractor pulls on the weekends, and you know, it was a lot of fun. 
Um, John Deere is not a tractor company anymore. John Deere is an integrated systemic farming company. They have turned farming into a system. They bought, uh, in 2017, uh, John Deere bought a company called uh, Blue River AI. And you know, through that investment, they, they looked to completely transform the way farming is done. So you can do it at scale, right? So, so now you, um, you know, autonomous tractors pulling, uh, you know, through, uh, through rows that are mapped out by, uh, you know, by optimization routines, the watering, um, the planting, uh, even the weeding. You know, for example, John Deere, uh, you know, John, John Deere equipment uh, on their sprayers, they have little cameras on the sprayers. And as they go down the rows, the little cameras look at any little shoots that are popping up in the field. And when they see those little shoots and they, they identify it through artificial intelligence and they say, Hey, if that's, that's a weed, I don't want that. It gets a little squirt of weed killer. If it's a crop that's desirable, the sprayer goes right on by without squirting weed killer, you know, like this level of autonomy now, then all the way through to, you know, when do you water? When do you have to watch too much water? Um, what's the weather patterns? What does that indicate for what you need to do to protect your crops during the growing season? When do you actually harvest? When do you actually uh, put it in the barn? And then how long do you keep it in the barn? Because your machines are, uh, are monitoring the commodities market so that you can get the best price for your, for your products. Like this is, like this is, Farming as a system, right? And if you think systemically, this is what U.S. industry uh, and increasingly across the world are using artificial intelligence and related technologies to, to, to start to automate and make these processes much more efficient by operating at scale. Mike, why is AI so useful? Does it help uh, military effectiveness? Yeah, so, so in the defense, you know, in the defense marketplace, I mean, you can you can quickly imagine like all of the use cases for uh, for artificial intelligence, and it really it parallels all of the warfighting functions that we operate today. You know, for example, in uh, you know in intelligence, um, you know, we've we've used uh, satellite imagery for you know for decades, uh, you know, as as a source of intelligence, uh, and now there's an entire commercial industry that also produces uh, you know satellite industry or satellite uh, satellite imagery for commercial customers. And all of those companies, to include the US government, are integrating artificial intelligence in that space. So for example, if you have a, you know, if you have a system that's taking, uh, you know, taking uh, an image of, of, a, of a place on the earth a couple times a day, um, why not have an artificial intelligence algorithm monitoring that, um, that little patch of dirt, say it's an airfield, and, and actually detecting identifying and counting the airplanes that are on that airfield several times a day. And then, and then having an automated alert that tells you, hey, an airplane moved from that, or all the airplanes moved from that. It's, you know, that's, that's a tiny example in the intelligence function where using artificial intelligence to monitor, to, to draw inferences from what happens or what changes in the environment, um, all the way through then the rest of the warfighting functions, you, you know, for command and control, like how, how do you make good decisions as a commander? You think about the complexity of modern um, uh, warfighting operations. Um, you, you know, one commander, um, you know, today we have, we have singular commanders and they have to, they have to take on this deep layers and layers of cognition, of all the things that are happening in the battle space. And right now it's done on PowerPoint slides or in chat rooms or, or physical briefings. 
what if we had the ability to allow commanders to extend their cognitive ability through machines? So, for example, maybe you had a, a machine monitoring the status of your logistics, for example, your logistics posture. Or maybe you had an algorithm monitoring uh, uh, enemy activity and identifying patterns in activity. And you can imagine, uh, you know, hundreds, probably thousands of different use cases where you can use machines to monitor the situation and then send alerts or roll-ups or recommendations to a human operator at every level, right? It could be a commander, but it might just be the, uh, you know, the fires coordinator, you know, sitting in the command post somewhere. So, like, all of these processes now can benefit from better availability of information. And when you have an information environment that everybody shares, then everybody gets the benefit of that because everybody then contributes to the picture and, and, and benefits from the picture. And all of that done, all of that is done by using machines to help us increase the level of cognitive um, uh, fidelity that's in that, that's in that structure. Mike, what is this new phenomenon called GPT? Generative retrained transformers. Is this something we should be concerned about? Well, generative pre-trained transformers, GPT, um, um, is a new type of AI. It's at a new scale. It's sort of a new implementation. And it's really exciting. Uh, GPT-4, so the fourth version of this of this technology, was released just, just like two months ago in March. So, so this really is new. And it's another step sort of in this continuous transformation journey we're on. You know, we will, we will, we will see for, you know, for years now, just enhancements in the technology, proliferation of application of the technology. Um, you know, it's an incredible journey that we're on and that we're going to be on for, you know, for the next decade or more as, as we really digitize, you know, our economy and our governance and the way we, the way we operate and live. So um, GPT, it's, uh, GPT is actually a methodology, right? This, this generative pre-trained transformers, it's a methodology and it's a method for machines to make structures out of large pools of data, right? So, so when you think about GPT, you're talking about large language models here. These are, these are large applications of artificial intelligence. And it's different than the narrow AI that we talked about before. You know, in, the, in a narrow AI, you know, it's, it's, it's machine learning. It's very handcrafted. You feed the machine lots of pictures of dogs and you tell it each time that it's a dog and it starts to learn the parameters of what a dog means, right? And so that's supervised learning because the humans are there teaching the machine. Um, um, in, in an example of a machine that uses GPT now, though, like a large language model, it uses unsupervised learning. So in unsupervised learning, the machine actually teaches itself. So it's given a corpus of data. Uh, you know, for, for example, you know, maybe, maybe a large language model, you're, you feed it lots of dialogue about dogs, say. And the GPT can then start stitching together those dialogues with, uh, and, and start to infer the relationships of the words, the structure of the sentences, words that often go together, a before and an after, and it starts to pull all these associations, associations together, and it becomes, it builds this large structure, right, the outlines of a conversation. And so, like, it becomes structurally conversant. That is, it has built, based on whatever the data that you've given it, you know, maybe it's lots of data about dogs, it builds a structure, a reference structure around the conversation about dogs, and it starts to be able to link conversations, it links components of those conversations, it links artifacts of those conversations, you know, dogs are, f f 
fluffy and they have a tail. Um, and it starts to, inf it starts to uh, inf make inferences then from all of that language and that structure. It's, it's uh, you know, and humans learn very similar ways, right? So like, but understanding the difference between how humans learn and how machines learn, I think is really important because in a large language model, you're learning from the words. And so, and, and for humans, words are, are just laden with context, laden with associations, laden with, you know, applications that maybe aren't obvious. Machines have to learn all of those things. Um, and, and so it's, it's really important to understand. We call these things large language models. And, and I think it's probably worth just talking about what that means, right? So like a lot, it's large, right? So for example, GPT-4, uh, I don't know the exact number, but it's hundreds of billions of parameters. And when when they pulled the language together, you know, to train the the GPT-4 algorithm, it cost twelve million dollars to train it. Right. So you had a defined pool of data. This is not free play on all the data in the universe. This is a defined corpus of data that is now fed into the large language model so it can now build this structure. Right. Um, you know, if it takes twelve million dollars to train this. This is not something you're going to see on your desktop anytime soon, right? Um, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the, the training set used for training a large language model, it's not yet live or dynamic, right? But, but um, OpenAI has given access to, uh, you know, to ChatGPT, and now uh, 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 large language models are being used in search engines. So, like, the, 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 the technology is actually starting to appear in places where maybe you wouldn't expect it, or maybe you don't even know that a large language model is is helping you uh, with you know with with your challenge, whatever that is. So um, you know, you think about like the, the advantages of scale with a large language model. Because so I mean, this is why it's large, right? And so you take like if you you know if you're trying to uh, you know teach a teach an algorithm of all everything about dogs, and you you know you 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 give it a dog book. And it consumes that dog book and creates the parameters and understands sort of the contextual relationship of language in that dog book. That's really something. However, if you take if you absorb all of the dog books, you have a massive corpus of data. Now, like the dialogue coming out of the algorithm becomes much more nuanced, much more, much richer, because it's not just, yes, that's a dog. Now you can identify types of dogs and behaviors of dogs and characteristics of dogs and medicine for dogs and you know all of the other artifacts of a dog and you really start to communicate in different ways, right? Uh, you know, m it gains nuance, it gains more reference, uh, you know, across you know across across scale. And this is the important thing about large language models: the scale, right? It's the scale that matters because the more the broader and the deeper the the that the algorithm is trained the better and more nuanced and more uh, uh, more appropriate are its answers to what the humans are looking for. So, so it's large, right? It's, it uses language. And then the next, you know, the next component of a large language model, what, what are you talking about when you say language? Um, generally, like this unsupervised learning, it takes a, the, a, a corpus of language, the, you know, the, like, like I said, hundreds of billions of parameters in this corpus of data, and that's what, the, that's what GPT-4 looks for, right? It looks through uh, you know, all of this language and builds those relationships. But here's the cool thing. Um, you know, and where GPT-4, to a degree, is really exciting because it speaks in English, right? You can communicate directly. You can converse with AI using natural language, and that's a that's that's, that really changes the relationship between humans and the perception of humans with these machines. But, but you think about, it's not just 
like English. That's magic here. These machines can communicate in any human language, right? And, it, and, it's, and, it's, and it's even better than that, right? So it, it, it understands computer languages. It can do code, right? And, and so it can write code for you or segments of code anyway. Um, it, it, can, it can absorb like the language of protein structures, right? In, your, in, the, in the chemicals of your body so that you can start to manipulate, you can understand the context and see maybe there are new medicines to be developed. Maybe there are new connections that humans can't see in their own minds. But these large language models can start pulling these things together because they understand the language of that of, of those structures that are fed it. And, and think about you know things like financial flows, you know the binary lang language of moisture evaporators. I mean you know like you know all of these different contexts where where information is conveyed, a large language model can then start to make sense of that and start drawing inferences and actually start to converse. Um, and so 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 it's large. It uses lots of different types of language, and then their models, right? So, so, so the, the stringing together words that are associative, you know, that's great. But you can start to build a, a reality, right? So, it's a model of it's a model of the universe that is communicated through the data that's used for training, and so you know, it's defined by the data you expose it to. Um, it, and it's you know, it's not the same thing as understanding what these words mean. I mean, you know, if if, if you know if if the algorithm understands rain, cat, dog, that doesn't mean it understands the phrase raining cats and dogs, right? And so, so like, like that's, that's a nuance that, that machines still have to be trained in understanding the nuance, those, those disconnects. Someone has to teach you that raining cats and dogs is not about cats or dogs, right? And so, so like these are nuances that humans now have to help machines understand that. And, uh, and, and a lot of times humans have different expectations. Um, you know, here's, here's the thing about humans. Um, I love humans. I am one. Um, humans are great at asking the right questions, right? Machines are great at giving the right, uh, the best answer possible with the data that they've been exposed to and the scope of, uh, of their response. And sometimes there are differing expect expectations, right? And so sometimes that causes confusion because humans will see something come out of a machine and say, well, that machine is hallucinating or that machine, you know, clearly is wrong in this case not understanding like the context of how that machine is, is constructed, how it is trained, what it actually is saying when it produces an answer. And this, this gap between human expectation and machine understanding is something that we'll have to, we'll have to continue to deal with. And I'm sure it will get better as, you know, as, as time goes on, but this is really important in today's world. When we talk about, uh, you know, uh, generative outputs, and humans, you know, making uh, reference to those generative outputs or, or you know, uh, characterizing those outputs, maybe in ways that the machine didn't intend the way that it produced those outcomes in the first place. Um, the, la the last thing uh, I just say is like it's it's generative, right? So so generative AI. And so what what's what's different here is now you can take data you've been exposed to, words, sentence, paragraphs. Uh, and you start you can, you can start to demonstrate knowledge of new content, right? You can generate new content by linking things that you know maybe there's a body of language here that had some sentences or phrases, and here's a different body of knowledge that had sentences or phrases, or maybe they're in different contexts entirely. Now the machine can start making associations and generate new content. 
Um, so, so there's a there's a lot of work to go here, right? So, so you, it doesn't mean you can just make leaps of logic, uh, you know, tie together multiple contexts yet. But this is where this is going. I, you know, I, I think about you know people talk about well AI, you know, generative AI passing the bar exam. That's great. It can. And GPT-4 is actually much better. I think GPT-3 could pass the bar exam, but it was always in the like the lower 10%. Um, GPT-4 now can pass the bar exam, but it's in the top 10% consistently of, of, uh, of, the, of the bar exam. Um, so, but, but yet the question remains, like, can it win a trial, right, in front of a jury, for example? Like these, these are the nuances, right, the different expectations of how you measure the performance of, you know, a new capability, a new technology like large language models and GPT and sort of like our, our human expectations of what, uh, you know, of what, what that actually means to win a trial. What does it actually mean to play to the sympathies of the jury and all these other things? Um, uh, the, the, the thing about generative AI and large language models is this is only a step in the right direction, right? So, so now think about multimodal large language models. So you know, we, we've just talked about language models. Now, multimodal language models can start to integrate photographs, video clips, uh, sounds. So as you can start to build, you, you know, this, this, this scaled universe that you've built given the words, you know, in a large language model, now you can start to expand that in that universe with video and art of sound and pictures. And, uh, and, and so you can already see, you know, tools like Dolly, if, 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 if you've, if you've uh, taken a look at that, also an open AI uh, uh, product. Um, you can give, you know you can give a text description it will and it will generate uh, an artistic uh, you know a, a, a representation of that text. It's really cool. This is how we need to be thinking about this. These scaled enterprises that are getting more and more sophisticated. Um, it's a juggernaut, and uh, it's it's you know it's still new to us today. Um, you know, imagine a large language model like working on your corporate data or your customer data or your market data or monitoring the, you know, like all of the data that's flying around in, uh, you know, in the, in the commercial marketplace looking for customers and looking for, you know, words that, that will actually inspire customers to click on the link. Like all of these kinds of things now become possible or more enhanced with a large language model. And, and, you know, I, I think I'll just cl close the answer with this, you know, this, just like we talked about vitamin I and imagination, like it's, it's kind of, it's, it's up, to, up to us now to imagine, like, how do we want this to grow? How do we want to use these tools? There's obvious, you know, great, uh, great things that we can accomplish with these tools. Where, how, what kind of controls do we want to put on this? What are the boundaries? What applications maybe we don't want machines in this space? Um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe where is the relationship? Where do humans fit in these, in these conversations? These are all ethical, uh, uh, economic and social aspects that we have to start to think about. And so, um, um, it, it's, it, this is part of this broad transformation. It's a brave new world. It's really exciting you know, buckle up, but we've got to steer this thing to where we are comfortable ethically as Americans, as humans, uh, you know, let's make sure that we get this right. And this, and there's a lot of great people that are, you know, that are doing exactly that today. Fascinating. Well, it is a brave new world. Mike, is the U.S. military ready to take this on? And if so, what kind of changes will it engender? Yeah, that's a great question. That's another great question because, you know, it's it is all about competition, right? Like like we 
you know, we, as we, as the world changes, as the world transforms, um, you know, you can't stand still in a transformational moment because if you do, you will immediately be outdated and unable to compete in a, you know, in, in whatever sphere you're in, whether that's a military sphere, an economic sphere, a global distribution or production sphere, whatever that is. Like if you stand, if you, if you, if you, if you're not running, you don't compete, you won't win. Right. And so, so like, we have to think about that through a, a military lens, like how do we gain competitive advantage by using the technology appropriately where it's, where it's mature, where we trust it, where we've been able to test it. Um, how do we use that to create competitive advantage on the battlefield? Because I think the most important use cases that we can describe are the young men and women who are, you know, wearing the uniform of our country and they're putting themselves in, you know, in harm's way on our behalf. They need our best and they need our best capabilities. And I, you know, when you look at, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, for example, or, uh, or the Russians to a lesser degree, um, they, they are, uh, you know, closed societies see a, a fantastic opportunity in, in uh, artificial intelligence to be able to monitor their populations, to be able to, to, uh, to you know, monitor what's happening in, uh, you know, in the media environment and shut that down and, and you know, look for triggers to, uh, you know, to, to, to continue to, uh, you know, empower the regime over, uh, over the people. And that, you know, that's, that's a, you know, that's an advantage that they're going to take and they're going to have. Um, and if we don't compete with that advantage, then then that leaves us, um, you know, that leaves us behind, right, on, on on our back foot. So I know, you know, I know, new technology can be scary. New technology, um, you, you know, uh, sometimes we don't understand because we're still learning about it. But it's really important that you know, given that we have the best universities in the world, we have the best AI and software companies in the world. So we have a natural, this is a natural competitive advantage for us that it's really important for us to continue, especially in the military space. I, th I think um, when we talk about the military space, then, you know, the, the, the department and the, the, especially the individual services are all working hard to identify use cases for this, to identify ways that they can use artificial intelligence and related capabilities to just to transform the outcomes of their war fighting, to become better integrated, to become much more efficient on the battlefield, much more, uh, much more able to monitor their progress toward outcomes, for example, or achieve like real jointness. You know, imagine this, if, if you know, if you, we've been chasing jointness for what, 30, 40 years now. And so um, imagine an environment where Machines help you link the service capabilities so that, you know, you could use an Air Force sensor to produce data that goes to an Army rocket battalion and uh, strikes a target because that's the optimal way to do it based on munitions and range and cost and, uh, you know, uh, uh, opportunity cost. Like you can do that kind of war fighting, right, where you can optimize so that allows you to really accelerate. It allows you to really monitor how you're, you know, how, how you're moving toward your goals. And so, like, like all of those things make it really important that in, from a military, through a military lens, we have to engage on this environment. Our, our opponents are engaging in it deeply. They're, they are all in. And, and we have to, you know, and we are stepping in, but we're not all in yet. And we can talk about that, too. Like, how, okay, how, you know, how, do, how do we actually do that? But, uh, but the spark has been lit. And so the department is tracking the opportunities and the things that it's going to have to do. 
to, uh, you know, to, to remain competitive in this new transformed environment. Mike, what are some of the obstacles to integrating AI into organizations like the military? Yeah, it's, uh, um, so like, you, you know, the, famously, the, you know, the U.S. Department of Defense doesn't move quickly. And, and you know, there's, there's a lot of different reasons for that. And some of them are, you know, are, are warranted. Some of them are, you know, our governmental processes and how we do this. But I think I think I would I would um, I, I think the primary uh, uh, consideration that, that we need to think about is I, I think we have a vitamin I deficiency. Right. And so a vitamin I deficiency, I being imagination, because if you are going to transform the way you do your war fighting function, whatever that is. So if you're going to transform, you're going to change the form of how you do this. You need to think through investigating your processes investigating the processes of the, the capabilities that you depend on or you partner with to achieve a capability. Like, and if, if you can't imagine how you would do that through an automated or artificially intelligence enabled way, then, then you won't do it. And so, so I think our vitamin I deficiency is reflected in, we do lots of, uh, you know, like innovation cells, for example, but the innovation cells just look at a piece of technology. We talk a lot about tech adoption, and 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 those are those are useful things to be sure. But that's not the same thing as transformation, because you have to take that technology. That technology by itself is not helpful. That technology imagined into a new process, that's powerful. And so what we have to do inside the department, and this is a cultural thing, how do we teach, especially functional communities or functional organizations? How do we teach them to think broadly? How do, we, how do we teach them to imagine their function done better, done faster, done in a more integrated way? Because when they can imagine that, then you can build it. And that cultural obstacle has, uh, I, I think, still is still with us. There's another, and that is you know, the way we acquire capabilities in the Department of Defense. And you know, this is no secret. There's any number of uh, efforts in the think tanks in town to kind of to look at this. Um, you know, we, we've been we've been peddling acquisition reform for decades, um, but but something really is new here that really needs to be addressed. Um, you know, at its core, the Department of Defense built its acquisition processes to acquire domain-specific hardware. You know, the Air Force buys airplanes, the Navy buys ships, um, and what 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 we're entering is an environment where software is probably the most critical component of any capability. And so ideally, the Department of Defense would be the world's greatest software integrator. Um, it's not today, and that's something that we're gonna have to build. So, so beyond just imagining transformed processes, warfighting processes, think about transformed business practices in the Department of Defense. Instead of domain-specific hardware, how do you gain domain-integrated software capabilities or integrated software capabilities that allow jointness, that allow optimization that allow efficiency and scale like if we're not thinking using those terms then we're not going to be able to achieve all the benefits or the opportunities that are in front of us and and, and we're and we're learning this and so you know um, you know nothing against innovation cells they're really good but innovation is more than just playing around with technology innovation is thinking through how we fight and then making that a part of our process Mike, what uh, safeguards is the United States government putting into place to 
protect us against uh, abuse and misuse by uh, bad actors, both foreign and domestic? Yeah, that, so, so that's that's a great question, Jim, because because like part and parcel with implementation of any digital technology today, you know, there's a range of things that you have to think about. Cybersecurity being probably the, you know, the, the most obvious and the most readily uh, readily identifiable. So, you know, artificial intelligence runs on large data networks. It Its data resides in data platforms. Its algorithms are in in uh, in 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 uh, platforms, development platforms, training platforms, operational platforms that that now like make these things work. Those are our partners. Those are our machine partners on the battlefield, even though they don't have physical form. But uh, but but they're they those machines, those virtual machines that are operating in our systems, have to be defended. They have to be protected. And so that's a really that's a really important consideration right up right up front. But but beyond that, even I think one you know one of the most I, this is one of the things that I'm actually quite proud of the U.S. Department of Defense here in in being a global leader in the ethics of technology and especially the ethics of artificial intelligence. And so so the Department of Defense you know w- was the first ones out of the gate to articulate um, uh, 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 AI uh, uh, AI uh, 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 the ethical framework the responsible AI. Uh, 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 characteristics uh, and the AI principles. So you think about, you, you know, articulating a set of principles is great. You know, the r- responsible, traceable, um, uh, equitable, reliable, governable. So, so you think through each one of those kind of things when you're building an AI system inside the Department of Defense. But it goes much, it goes much deeper than that because, for example, like how does the Department of Defense test and evaluate? artificial intelligence systems, right? Like we don't have a precedent here. We have great precedent for for testing physical hardware systems. We don't have good precedent for building software systems and software derived systems, especially if they use technology like artificial intelligence. So it's important that the department build the capability to do that. And the department is, is all over that. So, you know, how do you do test and evaluation in this environment? How do you do verification of the of the algorithms to make sure that you understand the behavior of those algorithms. How do you validate outcomes of, of, of algorithms in a system? Um, so, so like all of these steps, how do you think about like human machine integration or human machine teaming? Like, how do you think about the relationship between humans and machines um, on the battlefield? And, and do you have a doctrine for that? Do you have you, do, do your, do your war fighters, understand how that relationship uh, exists. That's really important to think through all of these things. At the, and, you know, that leads you to, you, know, you think about like doctrine for employment and, and, uh, and methodologies for employment of human machine teaming. To me, it all comes back to law of armed conflict, right? Like we are ethical warriors in the United States. You know, we fight ethically. Uh, you, you know, wars are sometimes necessary, but 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 when they are, we fight to uh, to uh, establish doctrine and process and, and responsibility, and that's legal, but it's also um, functional and it's also uh, uh, ethical, right? Like like this is how we will fight, and so we have to think through how do we do this. I call this uh, a journey to trust, because as we start to see more and more applications of artificial intelligence, you know, start to creep into our services and our and our and our processes. We're going to have to think through how do we trust? Where do we trust? What boundaries do we put on things? What safeguards do we put on things? How do we ensure how do we ensure that humans are safe with their machines? And how do we ensure that machines are safe with the humans? Uh, you know, in this human machine teaming. And so, so there's a there's a lot of work that has to be done. 
But I'm proud to say the Department of Defense is, is at the forefront of this work and uh, is really setting the path uh, you know, for, for global consideration of like, how do you fight as ethical warriors or as an ethical nation in an environment where everything has changed, right? Where, where suddenly you have all new transformational articles in the battle space with you. Mike, when you addressed uh, the in-person AFIO lunch a couple of weeks ago, you related to that audience an early conversation that you had, I believe, with an undersecretary of defense. I yes. think this audience would uh, enjoy hearing that uh, about that conversation as well. well. Yeah, that's that's a great one, Jim. So, so you know, just just uh, uh, you know, when I uh, when I took the reins at the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, and uh, you know, we had a new, you know, it was, it was close to the 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 the, trans, the the administration changing, and so we got a new deputy secretary of defense. And so um, I went to brief the Deputy Secretary of Defense on artificial intelligence because I was so excited. You know, it, it, lots of cool stuff was happening. I think we were, you know, we were really building a groundswell of understanding. And uh, so I, I went in there, you know, ready to, you know, ready to tell the Deputy Secretary of Defense how, uh, you know, how great the AI effort was, was, uh, you know, was uh, uh, moving, you know, down the tracks. And um, I didn't get, you know, three words out of my mouth. You know, maybe it was good morning, ma'am, or something like that. But uh, but but the deputy secretary of defense um, put her hand up and said, um, hold, hold on. I don't want to hear about the technology stuff. I want to hear about the ethics and how and the responsible application of artificial intelligence in the department. And, and I, you know, I was I was I was, uh, you know, caught, caught short immediately. But I was thrilled. Right. Like awesome. Right. Like like we are not just you know, we are not just chasing technology here. We're doing this in a responsible, ethical way, and we're purposefully doing that. And we're building the structures to make sure that the department does this in, in, in uh, uh, consistent with all of the principles that, you know, that we've established. But more importantly, consistent with the safety and efficacy of our young men and women, again, that are on the forward, are the, you know, they're on the edge. Right. And so they're taking the risk. We have to make sure that we de-risk everything that we, you know, so that so because they got enough risk on their plates already. So how do we make sure that they're not only empowered with technology, but they're empowered with ethical technology and know the right way to employ it? It's such an important part of the conversation. Mike, as we discussed off camera, a subset of this audience is the U.S. academic community. A lot of young people thinking about future careers. Um, Based on your illustrious career, what advice would you give them if they are considering a career in the U.S. military or military intelligence? Yeah, great. great. Yeah, illustrious, maybe, maybe not. Um, um, I, I will tell you this. Um, like lots of people, I joined the military. I was going to do it for three years. You know, I, it's something I wanted to serve, right? I thought it was my obligation as a citizen. I, you know, I, 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 I'm comfortable with the idea of service. I think... Uh, when you think broadly about you know, democracies and uh, the peril that democracies are in, you know, not just from autocratic opponents, but also, you know, changes in the information space and, you know, new technology and, uh, you know, how do you run, how do you run a democracy, which is really a consensus kind of uh, governance? How do you run that in an environment, uh, you know, with all these threats out there? I, so I wanted to pitch in for, for a couple of years and I did. And you know what? They said, uh, hey, um, you know, I know it's, it's time for you to go, but how would you like to do this next? And, and uh, you know, like, wow, that, I'd love to do that, right? So, you know, whether you, so you, you start to serve 
And then you had the opportunity, hey, how'd you like to go live in Japan for a couple of years? I'd love to do that. How'd you like to go to graduate school for a couple of years? I'd love to do that. How'd you like to go to this uh, organization and deploy and, you know, go aboard ship and, you know, see the seven seas? I'd love to do that. How would you like to, uh, how would you like to teach? How would you like to command? How would you like to grow? And through, uh, through all of these opportunities, you see, like, you, you develop such a great sense of service and, like, how it's so it's so incredibly satisfying to be surrounded by people who care, who people who are willing to put their money where their mouth is, people who are willing to serve. And then and then at the same time, if you're an intelligence officer, for example, like I was, you see the other side of the coin. You see what autocracies look like. You see how they govern. You see how they control their populations. And you see their designs on how to shortchange our democracy and to undercut our capability because it makes them and their populace uncomfortable. Like, okay, when you see that kind of environment, you see how important it is for us to protect what we have, to to reinforce what we have, to build a sense of commitment and service amongst each other. And sometimes that's in uniform, sometimes it's not, right? Sometimes it's, uh, you know, you can can serve in so many different ways. But I will tell you, I I did not intend to, to, to serve a military career, but, the, I, I was inspired by the people I served with, the people I met, the people I work with every day, um, uh, it, it, whether they were in uniform or they were an analyst at an intelligence agency. I mean, these are people who care and they're, and they're committed and they're making the world safe for democracy and they're protecting the democracy that we have. And I, I, I tell you, there's no more powerful message. You know, if you're a young man or woman who's thinking about military service, there's so many ways to serve, right? Whether that's in the military, or the intel community, or any other uh, instrument of government, this is how you this is how you pay your pay your way, right? This is how you share the responsibility of keeping a democracy alive in an autocratic, a naturally autocratic uh, globe. This is important work. We're under threat today, and there's nothing more important that you could do than uh, you know than raise your hand and serve for some for you know for some period of time. You don't have to do 36 years, um, but but uh, but don't be surprised if that bug bites you and you de- you decide you're happy to serve and you're proud of who you are when, when you're wearing that uniform. You're proud of who you are when you walk into that intelligence agency and you, you know that your actions that day are going to inform national decisions. That's a pretty powerful impulse, and that's a pretty that's a pretty powerful uh, uh, addiction, you know, to service that uh, you know that quickly that quickly grows around your heart. So, if you're thinking about it, I would I would I would absolutely encourage you to do it. Um, um, I have zero regrets. I would start all over tomorrow if I could. All right, thanks, Jim. Me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well said, Mike. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I want to thank Lieutenant General uh, Michael Gurn for really making a, a new and important but difficult topic a lot more understandable. Great. Well, thanks, Jim. I really appreciate the opportunity. And thanks to AFIO again for, uh, for hosting this.